All right, pulling up my notes here. Got the Quaker Oats box back. During the Cold War, it was used. So apparently they dropped Quaker Oats and there's just no second world anymore. I've uh, I've heard some people theorize maybe uh, Britain has the original chic mixes. We might have broke free of Britain, but I think now uh, Russia's controlling. The original chic mixes. <laughs> Is it 1991? <laughs> Yeah, what did I mean? That's a pretty loaded question. Britain, countries dependent on Britain and the United States. Quaker Oats. Yeah, I had no idea that he was behind that until doing research for this. Quaker Quaker Oats, Oats, he's like a middle-aged stoner. Has the original chic mixes. Well, now that we've done a little history lesson. Now that we've exposed the truth, the facts. (laughs) Yeah, I'd sell that information for a dollar. Welcome to I'd Buy That for a Dollar, a podcast about common, inexpensive, and underappreciated records that are waiting to be rediscovered. My name is Sean Hartman, and I'm joined by my regular co-host, spinner of 40% True Tales, Peter Cook. Yeah, it's a, the T is about the only thing you get out of me for the tale. Maybe the T-A. <laughs> T-A. And of course, we're also joined by the infamous secret skateboard stomper, Jeremy Ruggles. Wiggity, wiggity, I'll snap your deck. So, Peter, I hear you got another Nile Rodgers produced record for us to dance to today. You want to talk about that? Maybe play a track? Yeah, we're doing a Madonna album, right? Uh, I thought we were doing Duran Duran. <laughs> oh, oh, wait, no, Mick Jagger. <laughs> Wait, we're not listening to NXS? Okay. How about Sister Sledge? Are we listening to Sister Sledge? <laughs> we, we'll be talking a little bit about Sister Sledge in brief. But what I brought today, Diana Ross's 1980 release on Motown, simply titled Diana. So does that still count as a self-titled or is that like a half self-titled or what's the genre term for that? It's not eponymous in this case. I don't think it's self-titled. Yeah, is it half self-titled? She Her first <laughs> solo album from 1970 was self-titled. She might have had another album that was self-titled after that, too. Uh, so this one is just simply Diana. I don't know what that what happens when it's just the first name. Obviously, many artists have done that, I think. Mm-hmm. This was released May 22nd, 1980. So it very recently turned 40 years old, and it was her 10th studio solo album i want to just get started by playing a track called upside down never heard of it what's it like (laughs) you're about to find out i 
got a theory i want to run past you guys real quick i'm gonna please say do. please that, do it yeah anyone who claims they don't like that song are either lying to themselves or definitely a skin suit <laughs> <laughs> As... yeah so if you didn't like that just now and you're a listener you're either lying to yourself or a skin suit yeah you're a robot or an alien alien robot or you just need to get in touch with your emotions. Were we all bumping and bopping while li- while listening to that? Did you all find yourselves moving around a little bit? Well, personally, as a definitely not a skin suit, yeah. I'm also not an <laughs> idiot, so yeah. I, last week, I started recording these standing up to like, you know, let my energy flow. And while that was playing, I was kind of like juggling this roll of electrical tape that was like near me and i was kind of grooving around it was weird but it seems appropriate can't help it (laughs) obviously we were all familiar with with that track prior to this because we all own this album don't we yes fact one of the few albums we've done that all of us owned ahead of time before we even planned on doing the record it might be the first i'm not 100 percent positive but it might be the first time that's happened i think you're right yes so this is an I'd buy that first right here on this episode. I bought this for $3 at Greenlight last year, shortly after we did the Supremes episode, which I think was our fourth episode. It was very early on. It might have been a little, it, it was within the first few episodes anyway. Right, because I think we mentioned this record on that episode. Yeah, I think you alluded to this, because obviously we'll, we'll go back since that was a while ago. We'll mention that Sean came out as a Supremes hater on that Mm -hmm. episode he never heard the end of it for a while (laughs) so we won't dwell on that too much here because you said that this is an example of work by diana ross that you really enjoy yeah i I think that her solo stuff is for the most part better than her supremes recordings and i also will say that i have since bought a copy of that supremes record floyd joy and it's incredible i still stand behind that so Post Diana Ross Supremes and post Supremes Diana Ross for me, please. <laughs> You're a post person. Post human. Yeah. <laughs> Everybody else says they like people's early careers. I like their later careers, man. I guess that's why you're doing a podcast about albums that are underappreciated. Here we are. That said, I'd say that it's hard to say that this is an underappreciated album. I, I think it's inexpensive and common, but... This is a very well-known Diana Ross album. Mm-hmm. And one could argue that there are other records in her catalog more deserving of our show format. But I think this album holds up incredibly well for being 40 years old and is waiting to be rediscovered by the younger generation. So I still stand behind us doing this. Yeah, and it it's kind of always felt like one of those records where people know the hit songs off it, but they couldn't tell you what album those songs are from. And yeah, I think the the album as a whole could use a a little bit of a bump. So here we are. And Jeremy, what you've had this album for some time now, too? Uh, Maybe a year or so. I don't remember exactly when I got it. Yeah, it rules, though. Yeah, after we did the Supremes episode and 
kind of hated on the Diana Ross era Supremes. I thought, you know what? I guarantee I would like some of her later work. Oh, I um, remember now. I, I was uh, helping Sean DJ a thing, and he brought it, and I put it on, and I was looking through it. And I'm like, oh, it's got that song and that song, and then I put on some other random one. I'm like, this rules too. So I ended up getting it very <laughs> shortly after that. Was that yeah. uh, the New Year's party that we did together down in Indiana? No, it was like some worker appreciation party or something. Oh, okay, cool. So Upside Down that we just listened to hit number one on the Billboard Hot 100 on September 6th, 1980. I was exactly one month old when that happened. It stayed there for four weeks. And I guess Salt and Peppa did a version of this for, on the Space Jam soundtrack. That was just an interesting detail I found. Uh, you guys might be a little more of the Space Jam age than I was. Since I just dated myself, I was like 16 years old when that movie came out. So I never actually saw it. Yeah, I was 100% the target audience for Space Jam. I saw it in theaters and I will I will never not love that movie. I also <laughs> own the... Uh, record store day limited edition soundtrack on vinyl nice maybe i need to i need to watch that movie i feel like i'm missing out on a cultural experience by having not seen it yeah i think you should i went to a theater and saw it for its like 20th anniversary a couple years back too wow (laughs) that was the lead single and it was released oddly one month after the album which was one of the first details I saw. And I thought, that's really strange. You know, this is Motown. Why why are they not putting out a lead single? Well, that gets into who produced this album, as it is kind of a whole ordeal. Do either of you know who produced this record? Does someone want to say it? Bernard and Niall. Yeah, Bernard and Niall. Niall Rogers and Bernard Edwards the guitarist and bassist, respectively, of the band Chic. They were personally sought out and recruited by Diana Ross, who had heard their music as a regular patron of Studio 54. So Diana Ross was trying to revitalize her career in the wake of the failure of the film The Wiz, which was based off the hit Broadway musical of the same name and featured an all-black cast uh, version. It was an all-black cast version of The Wizard of Oz, are either of you familiar with that picture? Have you seen it? Yep. I've seen clips of it, and I think I maybe watched it when I was way younger and don't remember it. But uh, I also want to note that that movie is also mostly responsible for resurrecting the career of Michael Jackson, because that's how he met Quincy Jones. Yeah, I saw that probably on TV when I was very young, and I was maybe seven years old when I saw it, and I didn't I don't remember a whole lot about it. The things I remember noting, it was probably the first time that I ever really saw Michael Jackson in anything. And seven-year-old me, I remember thinking that for an adult, his voice sounded like a child. And also, why was an adult playing Dorothy, which was Diana Ross, (laughs) (laughs) Who, who was 33 at the time. And the... So the film was produced by Universal and Motown, and much of the criticism of why the film didn't work, yeah, it basically bombed at the box office, and much of the criticism of why the film didn't work is that Diana Ross, who replaced the teenage Stephanie Mills from the stage version as Dorothy, she pulled some strings at Universal 
and went around Barry Gordy to land the role. And a lot of uh, reviewers, critics just felt she was simply too old for the part. And she had previously received praise. Diana Ross had previously received praise for her portrayal of Billie Holiday in Lady Sings the Blues. She had been nominated for both a Golden Globe and Academy Award for that. And The Wiz effectively ended her acting career. And yeah, as you mentioned, it was kind of what really gave Rebirth to Michael Jackson's career. It's a weird movie, too. I think it might have bombed just because it's pretty weird. Yeah, I like I said, I don't really have that much memory of it. Strangely enough, it had just come up on Facebook. A friend had asked, like made a post about it a few days ago, asking people's thoughts on it. And a lot of people said that it was nightmare fuel for them as, as children. I think it was one of those movies that was on TV a lot in the 80s. I remember thinking it was pretty cool and hip, but I was, like I said, seven. So I, I can't really make any kind of statement as to how it holds up. But yeah, Diana Ross hadn't really had a top 10 hit in a few years at this time as the 70s were closing down and we were rolling into the 80s. And Niall Rogers, obviously Niall Rogers now, is known for working with huge artists like Madonna, David Bowie, and Mick Jagger. We mentioned more at the top. But at this time, Chic were not big names. They were well-known in the disco world, and had they had just worked with Sister Sledge, who we mentioned also. They had done We Are Family, which I did not realize that Niall Rogers and Bernard Edwards had written that song and produced that record for Sister Sledge. I was totally ignorant to that, so that was a cool detail. Uh, but they had never collaborated with someone at Diana Ross's level of stardom. And Niall Rogers actually says that Bernard Edwards, who was never nervous about anything, was absolutely terrified in her presence. Just starstruck. Hmm. And I couldn't actually, unfortunately, most of this information comes from Niall Rogers because Bernard Edwards died in 1996. So there's a lot more available footage of Niall Rogers talking about making this album. And he said that they did it in three stages once they were officially on board to produce this album for Diana Ross. First, Rogers and Edwards interviewed Ross as she was not only looking to modernize her sound, but wanted the material to reflect her life and where she was at in both her personal life and career at that moment. So they conducted an interview as if they were doing a documentary or a magazine article. They sat down with her for days, I think at her house, and they just kind of covered her whole life. They then edited the interview down to the basics and watched it over and over as if they were watching an official documentary made about her, like to learn about her from it. And from that, they wrote the songs. So a lot of the song titles come directly from things that Diana said in these interviews, like saying that she wanted to turn her career upside down. The writers turned that into a romantic notion. Ross also said that she wanted to have fun again, which is another song on the album. Uh, Niall Rogers said that because of them taking the information very much from her personal life and from interviews with her, they began using a lot of her vocabulary when writing the lyrics. And so like in the song that we listened to upside down, there's the word, the lyrics instinctively you give to me the love that I need. I cherish the moments with you respectfully. I say to thee really not 
conventional lyrics in a lot of sense, at least, you know, for 1980 rock or disco music, I say to thee, stuff like that. Yeah, I was thinking about that specifically today when I was re-listening to the record, that it was very unique lyric. Yeah, he said that she kind of has this sense of royalty about her. It's probably partially due to the uh, etiquette coaching that happened when she was a Motown artist. Mm -hmm. So they just pulled a lot of that from her personality. So the second step, or I'm sorry, that was the second step. The third step was producing the album. They brought in chic drummer Tony Thompson to play on the album as well. It was recorded between December of 1979 and March of 1980. And upon completion of the album, Diana Ross was not happy with the results. She took a copy, a preview copy, to an influential New York DJ named Frankie Cracker. And upon hearing that, he, t- he warned her that it could ruin her career in the wake of the anti-disco movement, the, the backlash, which we talked about on the Donna summer episode i don't know if we should refresh our listeners if they didn't tune into us that was a while ago and i think a lot of people are aware of the death of disco in the late 1970s yeah and i guess just a a brief recap the thing we've kind of talked about before is that the roots of disco were very entwined with uh queer culture and black culture and it's really hard to separate the extreme disco hate from those facts when you look at it historically. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. But, you know, this is a this was a, a real thing. She's trying to revitalize her career. And here's this, you know, influential DJ telling her that this album could ruin her. And according to Niall Rogers, Motown also initially rejected the album and weren't going to release it because it did not sound like a Diana Ross record. So Rogers and Edwards sued Motown and took them to court in order to get the record put out. Hmm. They won this first battle, but it wasn't over yet. The record was scheduled for release, but Diana Ross was still unhappy with how it sounded. So she ended up personally remixing and even re-recording parts of the album with help from Motown engineer Russ Tirana, And they boosted her vocals in the mix. They changed the tempo of some of the tracks and removed a lot of the extended instrumental passages to put herself more front and center. This was all done without Rogers and Edwards' knowledge. And when they heard the final product, they were devastated. They rejected it and considered having their names removed from the project. They did end up backing down. Motown went with with Diana Ross and Tarana's mix which was just, it was deemed more commercial. And decades later, Niall Rogers would say, thank God cooler heads prevailed and said, there's something great here, but it has to be made more accessible. But it sounds like at the time, they said it was the most difficult album they ever made. Uh, Niall Rogers said this, the most difficult project they were ever involved with. And long story short, I, I think all the fuss around the mixes is why it took a month after the album release for the first single to drop. And the album was apparently making noise even without a single. So eventually they're like, hey, we got to get upside down out. (laughs) This went on to be the best-selling album of Diana Ross's career, selling more than 10 million copies worldwide and spawned three big international hits. And Upside Down was one of those. And that takes us right into I'm Coming Out, which I'd like to listen to now.
Did either of you guys hear the original mix? Yeah. Yeah. I have not. They released uh, two years ago. They did a deluxe edition, and they included the original Schick mixes, and I was kind of underwhelmed, honestly. I think they did the right thing by remixing it. I 100% agree with you. I checked those out on Spotify, and there's actually, I think that the only instance of uh, the mixes being better was actually, we just heard it, that trombone solo, which is a very rare instance of a trombone solo on a top 10 pop hit. The guy who played that said he did four passes on it, and uh, the fourth one was the best take, but when she took, when Diana Ross took the mixes to Tirana at Motown, he clearly just used track number one. And it was like his, you know, like his first pass, just kind of feeling out the track. And he's like, the, the guy who played it was like, man, I'm really honored and proud to be, uh, you know, like one of the only trombone solos on a top 10 pop hit, you know, in the last 50 years. But that's not my best performance. That's not my best take. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, largely, by and large, Jeremy, I agree with you. I think that it was the right move, the right call to remix things. It just sounds more like Diana Ross, and it pops a little bit more. Yeah, and I thought the the original chic mixes were, they kind of date it pretty mm-hmm. heavily. There's a lot of disco tropes. And I think when they removed it, like there's still a disco influence. You still hear that like Nile Rodgers chucking and that funky like poppy Bernard bass and all that. But uh, it it's like cleaner and more like to the point, I guess. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I feel like this album sounds less dated because of the decisions that Diana Ross made in remixing it and re-recording some of it. Yeah, I think you could. All right, hold up, hold up, though, hold up, guys. I just gotta, I gotta jump in here, Peter. You kept referring to the trombone player as that guy or that trombone player, but you didn't, you didn't tell us who he is. I did. I wasn't familiar with the guy's name. Is he someone important? Uh, yeah, that's Miko, dude. That's the guy that did the <laughs> the Star Wars music stuff? inspired by Star Wars and other galactic <laughs> funk. How did I miss that? I don't know how you missed that. Uh, I was. <laughs> Yeah, he also did uh, the the disco encounters of every kind, the disco Wizard of Oz, uh, the disco Superman and other galactic heroes. Oh, my God. Legend. You've caught me slipping here. (laughs) It's just so so, uh, focused on getting the story of this album down that I missed a key ingredient. But, you know, I'm glad you caught that. Yeah, our our listeners would have crucified us otherwise. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> so Niall Rogers was inspired to write the song that we just listened to I'm coming out after seeing a group of Diana Ross impersonators in the bathroom at a predominantly transgender club in Midtown Manhattan Rogers and Edwards frequented a lot of underground discotheques in New York City to get hip to cutting edge underground music that's the only way they were going to hear a lot of that stuff you know no internet it was a different world Mm-hmm. So Rogers called Edwards from a payphone outside the club, also a different world. And he had the idea of writing a song that would align Diana with her strong fan base in the LGBTQ community. He probably didn't use that 
term because I don't think it existed then, but we'll use that for the sake of now. He thought of it as a double entendre where it could be used as her introduction song at concerts with her coming out on stage. But he also thought of this hypothetical scenario where Diana Ross came out as gay. Uh, So Edwards and Rogers got together and wrote it. Diana Ross, who is heterosexual, initially had reservations about releasing the song. She, by all accounts, while they were recording the song, she didn't even grasp that meaning. And when it was pointed out to her by DJ Frankie Crocker, Diana Ross reportedly returned to Rogers and Edwards in tears, asking if they were trying to sabotage her career. I was initially disappointed to hear that Ross didn't openly embrace this idea, but the more I thought about it, I started to consider some things that helped me understand where she might have been coming from. Uh, Firstly, I think that this could partially be a a reflection of Ross's musical upbringing in the Supremes and her time with Motown. We mentioned that Motown had hired etiquette coaches to make their female artists, quote, fit for kings and queens. This was a part of the label's plan to make the Supremes more palatable to conservative white audiences. So Diana Ross had been nurtured to want to appeal to that crowd who were decidedly probably not itching for a gay pride song. And also this has to be framed in the Disco Sucks movement, which was in full swing when this was being recorded. You know, the death of disco movement was mainly spearheaded by straight white men, and it obviously had overtones of racism, sexism, and homophobia. And looking at it more, it doesn't appear to be so much that Ross didn't appreciate her fan base in the gay community, so much as she was hesitant to take any big career risks during this time as she had label executives breathing down her neck about reviving her career. And when Ross had asked Niall Rogers if this was a gay pride song, Rogers says it's the only time he's ever lied to an artist and told her that no, it wasn't a gay anthem. It was meant to celebrate her intentions to leave Motown and come out from under Barry Gordy's thumb. That would make it a triple entendre. And I think that Rogers, it's worth pointing out, I think Rogers had already lied to her once before that. He had lied by omission by not telling her what the song was about up front. Yeah, I think by him not saying anything, like, I would be upset if I was an artist and there was, like, some meaning to the song that they didn't tell me, like. Regardless yeah. of if you agree with the meaning or not, it just feels like being used or something or like, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, especially especially for an artist that had been used their entire career, you know, hadn't really had a lot of uh, artistic statement or power in the Motown world. So having <laughs> having to make a statement as someone who's like coming into power and reinventing themselves without having actually said this is the statement I want to make is kind of weird for sure. Yeah. Yeah. I thought about that more and I was like, that's just a lot to put on someone without telling them. And I think furthermore, it's actually hard to find Diana Ross commenting on her music in interviews. So it was hard to get a statement from her on this. Maybe there's stuff out there, but I had a real hard time finding interviews where they talk to her about her musical content. They always want to talk to her, about fashion, you know, her clothing, her hair, or her family life. She's an icon. 
Um, and I th- almost, even though her music is very popular, it's actually very hard to find interviews where they really take an interest in her music. So I, that's one thing I just want to say as far as getting a lot of Nile Rogers perspective on this. That's There's just so much more available out there using his perspective instead of Diana Ross's. And it seems that by the time of, the, of release, though, uh, Diana Ross was more comfortable with embracing all the multiple meanings of the song. The song went on to be embraced as a celebration of lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender identity and the encouragement of self-disclosure. The song peaked at number five on the Billboard Hot 100 charts and has almost always been the song Diana Ross opens performances with since 1980. Hmm. When I first bought this album and heard the opening of that track, my brain immediately went somewhere else than, uh, I, I didn't know this song. I was not familiar with this song prior to purchasing the record. We always, we've talked a lot about the Tupac connections. I always try to bring up a Tupac connection, but I don't have one for this album. I do, however, have a Biggie connection. Notorious! Okay. <laughs> that uh, the, I'm Coming Out was sampled on Mo Money, Mo Problems off of Life After Death, the second and final Biggie album. That's where I heard it originally, too, to be honest. Yeah, you're familiar with that one too, Jeremy. Oh yeah, that is that the one Puff Daddy's on too. Yeah, I mean it's almost feels more like a Puff Daddy track than a Biggie track. Yeah, it was uh, it was released posthumously as a single, and in the video, it's very it's Puff Daddy and Mace, a very glossy video of them dancing around, and then there's just like footage of a Biggie during his part. Like they're phoning him in <laughs> from the afterlife for his <laughs> verse. Uh, but yeah, they, they sampled the Diana Ross, the opening of that track. Very, very, well, that's okay. So that's the problem for me with a lot of what Puff Daddy did with sampling. I think of sampling as a very subtle and amazing art where you can take something pre-existing and transform it into something completely new. Puff Daddy just takes the hook that was already a hit P. Diddy, Puff Daddy, whatever we want to call him. I know this is like 20, 25 years later, so it's not like I'm really calling him out or bringing him down. <laughs> but yeah, he just takes the goal, the the track that was already a hit and makes a new hit out of it. I've definitely heard a lot of producers that I look up to talk shit about that style of production as well. Like if it's too easy of a sample, if it's not an interesting flip, if you're not putting a new artistic statement on it, then kind of an amateur. But, you know, whatever. Puff Daddy's, what, the second uh, most wealthy hip-hop artist of all time? Yeah, I think that he was actually rivaling Barry Gordy as a label for how many, like, hits they were putting into the top ten, you know, in, like, a brief time frame. So, Mm -hmm. yeah, I mean, (laughs) he's had success with it, obviously. He's laughing on his pile of money while I'm sitting here sweating in my bedroom recording this podcast. Yeah, here's (laughs) what I don't like about you, Puff Daddy. (laughs) Sean Diddy Combs. (laughs) (laughs) I'm really sweating. Yeah, actually, I got... Let's go ahead and do that. Um, I have some, I have a little bio information, but we can do that after the, we can do that after the next song. I would like to play Have Fun Again. Let's do it. Everybody! Have fun again. 
talked about how this record was seen as kind of a risk for its genre at the beginning. You know, the disco movement was fading out and people didn't think there could be another hit. But one thing I was thinking about, especially earlier today when I was revisiting the record, is that it seems like the perfect stepping stone from disco into the new styles of funk that would be exploding, you know, shortly into the 80s. It's still got a lot of the disco elements and some of the songwriting, but there's a lot more groove and syncopation to a lot of the instruments on this record than you normally hear in disco records from like three years before this. And I, yeah, I thought that was an interesting element to this record. So it's weird that they it was viewed as a, a pure disco record that wouldn't work. Well, this is the changed mix. If you listen to the original mix, there's a lot more like strings that kind of cover up some of the grooviness and like stretch it out more with like drum beats i would say they did a good job at pulling it they turn it into that stepping stone instead of it just being kind of a another disco album okay that makes a lot of sense that's interesting diana yeah diana did the right thing there though i think peter did the wrong thing that's probably my least favorite song on the album (laughs) you don't want to have fun again jeremy it's just a little too on the nose even though it's very similar to the other two you played they're like all pretty similar in my mind the message is just too like wholesome i guess (laughs) there's not enough danger for you no yeah i mean i was gonna going back to what we were just saying i a review that i read said that this is kind of retroactively viewed as a stepping stone from that disco sound into 80s funk. So you're on the nose with that, Sean. Cool, cool. I don't remember what website I saw that on, but I'll find out and you can be a writer for them. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> <laughs> so do we want a little bit? I didn't go as deep on the biography stuff on this one because I feel like Diana Ross is a huge name and I really wanted to focus more on this record and where it falls in her catalog or what it just kind of really the significance of it and all that went into the production of it. But I do have a little bit of bio and cool facts if we want to get into that. Yeah, give us the broad strokes. I hear a cool fact. All right, will do. Diana Ross, born March 26th, 1944 in Detroit, Michigan. Woo! Representing the Michigan. (laughs) Yep. If you're just tuning into this podcast, it's coming straight out of Michigan. So... We like those Michigan-based artists. She is 76 years young. She was actually at birth named Diane. And due to a clerical error, she became Diana Ross. On early Supremes releases, she is listed as Diane. And friends and family still know her as Diane. I noticed that in some of the interviews I watched. They refer to her as Diane. But I think as a stage name, Diana Ross has a lot more grace and presence than diane ross yeah it flows way better for sure that extra syllable she grew up in the north end of detroit where her neighbor was Smokey robinson and he was later instrumental in bringing her teenage vocal group the primettes to the attention of motown head barry gordy the primettes would become this group called the supremes who of whom sean hartman is a supreme hater despise completely (laughs) Come at me. I will. So as some of you may know, go ahead. I will. I'm going to come at Sean. 
All right. Well, please do. Give this pandemic another year or so, and then I'm going to come at you. <laughs> so as we, as some of us may know, with the Supremes, Diana Ross became not only a superstar recording artist, but a diva and fashion icon. And she actually receives a little bit of criticism I've heard for her vocal style, which is said to be more akin to pop than soul. I feel like on some of the tracks that we featured today, though, uh, especially just like uh, I'm Coming Out, where she just comes out the gate in that high register, I think she proves herself as a vocalist. Mm -hmm. So she was with the Supremes until 1970. They had... uh, 12 number one singles while she was with the Supremes in the United States alone. I don't even know what the worldwide numbers are. Her first solo album, the self-titled Diana Ross, was released in 1970. She went on to have six number one singles as a solo artist, a total of 18 number one hits in her career. Her most recent album is I Love You, released in 2006. And I checked that out, just a little bit of it, a few tracks just to kind of see what a 2006 Diana Ross solo album sounds like. And right away, I was blown away by the fact that the first song on it is a cover of Remember by Harry Nilsson off of The Hmm. Son of Schmilson. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I looked into it further, and she's also covered songs from The Point in a medley on the 1977 Live Devil album, an evening with Diana Ross. So she did like me and my arrow and a few of the other songs from that. She kind of acted out some of the dialogue from the point even. (laughs) So she's apparently a big Harry Nilsson fan. So that's cool. She has five children and has been married twice in between her husbands. She dated kiss lead singer, Gene Simmons from, from 1980 to 1983, I, that's exactly the reaction I was expecting from you, Sean. <laughs> I also feel, uh, for the record. Yeah. Uh, that was uh, that was probably the moment where I had the most pause, even more so than the I'm coming out story. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, if anything is going to make her judgment suspect. And when I saw that, I saw that Gene Simmons was with Cher just before that. What in the world? That's bizarre. Hopefully people's judgment has improved since the 70s and 80s. Hopefully. Stay away from Gene Simmons. He is no good. (laughs) Taking a firm stance. (laughs) (laughs) One of her stepdaughters from her second marriage is folk singer Leona Ness. Her second husband was... Arne Ness Jr., a Norwegian shipping magnet, and tragically, he fell to his death in a South African mountain climbing accident in 2004. She has not remarried since then. Hmm. They had two children together, and she remains close with her stepchildren from that marriage. Diana Ross has been nominated for 12 Grammys, and she finally was awarded one in 2012 in the form of a Lifetime Achievement Award. I mean, I know we mention the Grammys sometime because it's a gauge for how publicly people have been acknowledged. I know none of us really give a damn about the Grammys here on I'd Buy That for a Dollar, but I think it's insane and a further testament to how much of a bogus institution they are that it wasn't until 2012 that Diana Ross received any kind of Grammy. Yeah, I mean, you know, as a uh, 
a registered Diana Ross hater. Even I think that's absurd. <laughs> there you go. We're coming after the Grammys too. Gene Simmons and the Grammys are going down on this episode. Add, a, add them to the list. Add them baby. to the list. <laughs> Can one of our devoted listeners actually make a list somewhere? I I would like to see a collected list of our enemies. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe for yep. our one year anniversary, we'll just do an episode listing all the reasons why we hate these people. <laughs> we'll just go down the list and reinforce it. Well, that's coming up in a few months, so it's we got to start getting ideas together. For all right, I'm going to start looking at court records. <laughs> oh God, <laughs> sounds like a good use of our time. <laughs> <laughs> I really don't know that much of her solo catalog beyond this album. I don't know if either of you do, if there's any other albums you could recommend. Yeah, I've listened to a couple of her earlier solo records that I really liked. Two of the early records of hers that I really like are the the actual self-titled one from 1970. And then uh, the last time I saw him from 73, I think is pretty cool. And then she also did that uh, duet album with Marvin Gaye in 73, Diana and Marvin. That's also oh, a really good. Oh, one. yeah. I am not familiar with that one. It's good. Classic. I'll have to check that one out. Yeah, who are some similar artists to Diana Ross? Is there anyone that we could uh, recommend, dollar bin type of artists? I don't know that. Do, I mean, I guess that's another question. To, do any of her solo albums demand a high price usually used? Not that I'm really aware of. I mean, you could also just look at a list of other chic Nile Rodgers produced albums for a similar vibe to this one. You know, the Sister Sledge stuff would be another good place to start. Another uh, female disco funk group that I really like is the Pointer Sisters, and all their stuff is super cheap as well. Mm, yeah. We actually had a Kalamazoo or Kalamazoo County resident who was a backup singer for the Pointer Sisters. Nice. His, na- his name is Theron. I-, I can't remember his last name. He went by the name the Black Diamond. He's a African-American Neil Diamond impersonator. <laughs> That's cool. <laughs> yeah. And he had also sang backup for the Pointer Sisters. I used to hang out at the bar with him back in the day. <laughs> in a different lifetime. Yeah, a very long time ago. Long ago, far away, just like the Remember song that Diana Ross covered by Nilsson. <laughs> well done. <laughs> well, I think that about wraps it up for this episode. I had plans to go out on my old piano. Jeremy, do you approve or disapprove? Yeah. That's I don't what... care if Jeremy approves. That's a great option. I agree and give approval. Whether or not Sean respects my approval is up to him. I respect <laughs> his opinion. I'll respect your approval as long as it's right. What I want you to do, Jeremy, is write a song called Have Fun Again that you think better in, encapsulates that phrase. Oh, you this don't. Peter and I will, yeah, and then Peter and I will do a special episode reviewing that song. <laughs> This is a COVID challenge to you. You got the time to be creative. Christ. You, you think about. He doesn't when... have the time to be creative. He's too busy editing these podcasts for us. That's true. We have quite the burden on him and his personal time. Yes. Okay. Well, Jeremy, I, w- I want you to dream about writing a song about having fun again. All right. I'll work on it. 
<laughs> All right, boys. Well, are we ready to wrap this one up then? Let's do it. Well, this has been I'd Buy That for a Dollar. My name is Peter Cook. I'm Sean Hartman. And I am approval giver, Jeremy Ruggles. <laughs> Please, everyone, have fun again. <laughs> On your old piano. Are you looking to have fun again? Maybe look back into our catalog. You can find episodes about the Supremes. You can find an episode about Material or Donna Summer. If you liked this episode. If you'd like to recommend something to us, you can find us on the Facebook or at I'd Buy That Podcast at gmail.com. I'm sorry, my skin suit has fallen off and I have turned into a commercial. But thank you for tuning in.